0: Donna Loring. Webernacki Windows is a monthly show featuring Webernacki perspectives, topics, and opinions, as well as interviews with Native artists, writers, and people of interest. Uh, so, today is the first show in a series that I've been planning on doing on, on sovereignty, on unpacking on sovereignty. And we, I'm going to do it by going back into history and then coming forward. It doesn't make much sense right now but it will, I promise. Uh, so I have uh, two very special guests and experts in their field. Uh, and they've written a number, many, many books and papers on, uh, on history and how it pertains to uh, native history. And the first person I'm going to introduce is Professor uh, Colin Calloway out of Dartmouth, And, uh, you know, I could go on about each one of the people I'm going to introduce. Uh, Colin Calloway is the first one, and then uh, Professor Harold Prince is the second. But I'll just try to make it short, uh, because we only have uh, less than an hour uh, for our discussion. So uh, Colin is a John Kimball, Jr., 1943 professor of history and Native American studies at Dartmouth College. His previous books include A Scratch of the Pen and The Victory with No Name. And uh, he's written many more books books besides those, I'll tell you. He's been the recipient of numerous awards, including the Merle Curdy Award and the American uh, History Life Achievement Award. So I'll just cut that. Oh, yeah. And I I do want to say that what really prompted me to invite Colin on the show was his most recent book that I know of. I don't know if you've got a more recent one, Colin. (laughs) But... His most recent book uh, called, entitled uh, The Indian World of George Washington. And uh, the Indian world, and I'm taking this from the National Book Foundation site. The Indian world of uh, George Washington spans decades of Native American leaders interaction with Washington from his early days as surveyor of Indian lands to his military career against both the French and the British to his presidency when he dealt with the Native Americans as the head of state, would with a foreign power, using every means of diplomacy and persuasion to fulfill the new republic's destiny by appropriating their land. By the end of his life, Washington knew more than anyone else in America about the frontier and its significance to the future of this country. Uh, So welcome to the show, Colin.
1: Thank you, Donna. Pleasure to be here.
0: And my next intro is going to be Harold Prince, who every buddy, every tribal member I know knows Harold. Harold's worked with uh, the tribes for well, I don't know Harold, 30, 40 years, many years. And Harold, I, I don't know Harold, if you're still a professor at the uh, University of uh, Kansas um, or. But anyway, so uh, Harold Prince is appointed. Uh, University Distinguished Professor of Anthropology at Kansas State University in 2005. He has been recognized for teaching research and academic leadership. The Carnegie Foundation's Council for the Advancement and Support of Education honored him uh, in 2006 for the Professor of the Year for Kansas. Much of Dr. Prince's writing focuses on Northeast America's Indian cultures and history, in particular Wabanaki. Micmac, Maliseet, Passamaquoddy, Penobscot, and Abenaki. And he authored the uh, Micmac Resistance, uh, Accommodation and Cultural Survival uh, Tribulations of a Border Tribe. And uh, he's written many books, but uh, he's written some with his wife, Bunny McBride, two volume report on the National Park Service titled Astico's uh, Island Domain. So, uh, and I think the, I don't know how old this is, but it talks about. The most recent book title that you're working on is uh, Penobscot Indian War Hero, Charles Shea. Not sure if if that's out yet or not. But uh, he was also co-principal investigator with his wife, Bunny McBride, for a national parks project on indigenous historical ecology on Seacoast, Maine, and guest curator for an exhibit, Wabanaki and Rusticators at Mount Desert Island, 1850s to 1912. 20s at the Abbey in Bar Harbor, and I know you. That's that was what a couple of years ago. So Harold, Colin, and Harold, you are the the experts that I need to talk to today on the show. So and and it intrigues me. We'll start with uh, Colin. Intrigues me about Washington uh, because when you think about George Washington, you don't think about Indians. So Colin, if you could just uh, tell us about Washington and his early years.
1: Yes, of course. Thank you, Donna. So um, the reason I wrote this book, I should maybe explain myself. People like me, historians who try to get a better understanding of American history by incorporating, including Native American history, been frustrated for a lot of years because um, no matter how much work we do, it seems you, you don't get very far. And it struck me that if I could tie Native American history to the life of, if you like, the most famous American, that would be a good vehicle, a good (laughs) strategy for showing how important Native America, Native American land, Native American people, Native American power were to the early history of the country because they were so important to to the life story of the man who founded the country a country. So it was, it, was a, <clears throat> it was a book with an agenda. And, but part of doing the book and, and going back to that and framing George Washington's life in an Indian world was to recognize something that was obvious to people then, but is not, I think, obvious to people now. And that is <clears throat> that in the 18th century, Native people were everywhere, Native people were a, a context in which Washington Goo, built his career, um, developed his political agenda, etc. Because for another reason, it was all about Indian land. Land was the key to fortune, whether personal, uh, in the case of Washington the key to power was in the case of Virginia's estate, and the key to the growth of the of the country, of the new nation. Um, it was all to do with, with land. Fortunes were made buying and selling land, and of course, wars were fought buying and selling land. And I actually had the question that, that Donna raised. Uh, people don't associate George Washington with Indians very much. I was actually asked that early on in, in the project. People would occasionally ask me, well, is, is there anything there? Is there a story there? Is there was mu- enough information there? And there is. There's tons. And it's in Washington's writings. We, we haven't seen it because I think we haven't looked for it. Um, but once you get back into the 18th century, uh, Native America is central to, I'd say, everything. And what I wanted to do was say, here's a part of Washington's story that's been missing, and you can get it by going back into Washington's writings. What can, what's interested me about uh, Donna's uh, interest here, tribal sovereignty, is that maybe it's because I'm British, uh, a foreigner. Uh, I've often had people tell me, um, let me tell you about how it is with Native Americans in this country, son. Right. Um, they're, they're not nations, they're tribes. You know, all this stuff about sovereignty is just a, a modern in, invention, it's kind of political correct, et cetera, et cetera. Um, well, that's not the impression you get in the 18th century. In the 18th century, it's all about sovereignty. You may not get native speakers using the actual word sovereignty, but what they're talking about is land, independence, having control over the, their lives, and maintaining their culture. It's all about sovereignty, and I suppose something that um, I learned from it more than I I, uh, I had realised that was that Washington. And the early founding fathers acknowledged and respected that sovereignty. They used the terms nation and they did that not out of um, a gesture of respect but because that's what Indian powers were, they were nations. They recognized that different indigenous nations had their own foreign policies, exerted their own influence, and were powers to be reckoned with and that's where i kind of start in the book with washington as a young man in the ohio country learning the ropes literally figuring out how to do native american diplomacy how do wampum belts work how does how do we communicate messages what are the protocols and the rituals and the power players that are involved. And frankly, in a, as a young man, he's, he's out of his depth. Right? But this is something that he, he, he carries with him through life, right? that the indigenous nations of North America are powers with which he has to deal, he has to learn the language of wampum diplomacy, and he also has to deal with them as real powers. So early in his life, at the beginning of the French and Indian War, George Washington is involved in a campaign against the French fort at what is now Pittsburgh, it was then called Fort Duquesne, and it's a campaign by the largest army that the British Empire had up until that point sent to North America. The army is obliterated by essentially a Native American army. It's indigenous warriors with French allies. It's swept away. It's obliterated. Washington survives. Um,
0: so this, uh, this you're talking about the uh, the French the Indian War, which is the Seven Year War, right? That's right. Yeah. So those that territory they were fighting over. Was from uh, was it New New France,
2: mm-hmm.
0: uh, which consisted of, what is it? Just it's north of Maine, the yeah. Quebec area, and all the way down uh, south of Virginia to where?
1: Yeah, essentially New France uh, and the French Empire, if you like, in North America. From our perspective in New England, we tend to think of it it's it's north of here, right? But in fact. <coughs> France's North American empire stretched from the, the mouth of the St. Lawrence to the mouth of the Mississippi. And it was a huge arc. It wasn't heavily defended or heavily populated, but French claimed territory in a huge arc that actually uh, penned the British colonies in east of the Appalachian Mountains. And much of that empire was based not upon the, um, garrisons of troops or uh, populations of farmers. It was actually based on trade with Indian nations and the French forts that were out in the West were very often there with not only with Indian sufferance but on sometimes invited there with Indians. The British had to break that uh, that barrier if they were to expand westward. So the, the French and Indian War, or the Seven Years' War, as it's called, actually breaks out in a contest about what we, what was called the Ohio country, which is essentially the Midwest, because the British and the French recognized that whoever called, controlled the Ohio River, the folks of the Ohio at, at what's now Pittsburgh and, and all of that area, controlled the key to the continent. Both the British and the French also, however, understood that whoever was going to win there needed to have the alliance of the Indian people who lived there, because in many ways they were the real um, the real sources of influence and the real sources of power in the land.
2: Yeah. So they. Yeah, knew- I, uh, okay. I was wondering if I could quickly make a comment on what Colin was just saying, Donna. Sure. Yes. Um. You mentioned New France and uh, we should keep in mind that these boundaries were mostly in the minds of Europeans at the time Mm -hmm. uh, because when you look for example even in Maine at uh, the so-called disputed boundary the eastern disputed boundary that it was highly uncertain even in the minds of Europeans where the boundary of New France was was it here on the Kennebec where I'm living or was it on the Penobscot uh, where you're living or was it even further uh, northeast, down east? And so uh, when the Penobscots, um, right after the uh, American Revolutionary War, when they are uh, trying to figure out who is in jurisdiction here, they first turn to Quebec. They don't first turn to Boston. And then they think it's it's uh, Halifax. And they later are being told, in essence, that they should turn themselves to Boston. And so you see this highly uncertain um, political reality that is shifting all the time. It's highly confusing, even for us today, to figure out what is when, where, and where are these boundaries. And then we draw these maps, and then we get a false reality, as if these are established facts on the ground. Columns referring to the lack of fortresses. Mm-hmm. There's here and there as a fortress, but what happens once you're out of the perimeter, uh, even of 200, 300 meters from the fort, it already becomes uncertain. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I just want to say that I think the common will probably agree with that uh, commentary.
1: Yeah, and I think part of that, the confusion that's, that takes place, for instance, in the Ohio country, or actually, I suppose, anywhere you want to slice America at any time, yeah. is that Europeans are trying to impose their own imagined geographies on indigenous realities, I mean, I, I'm thinking I can picture a British map from 1755, which divides up North America with a series of straight lines running right across the country, right? We, we, we're we never accused of being the most imaginative people, just draw straight lines everywhere. Of course, it bears no relation to reality. It's a, it's a European fantasy. And I think very often what, what Washington, for instance, is dealing with struggling on the ground to figure it out is part of a larger... Um, Tussle in which Europeans are trying to impose that fantasy on North America, but the people who are calling the shots are native people, and they're not seeing it this way at all. And even if they do see it your way, it doesn't mean they want to go along with that. Uh, they may have they have other agendas and other interests to pursue.
0: Right. So, so Washington, in his young in his younger years, like I think it's his twenties or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he, he goes and he, he gets this, uh, command, right? He, yeah. and, uh, he has no idea how to deal with the tribes and how to make them allies, but he just goes out, he thinks he can do it. So he goes out and he messes up big time. Yeah. So can you want to talk about that?
1: Yeah. So he's, he's basically sent, uh, what the governor of Virginia sees the situation in which the French and the, and the British are basically glowering at each other over the Ohio country. Right? Pennsylvania traders are going in there uh, in greater numbers. Uh, Virginian land companies are, are exploring in that area and the French respond by sending in troops and um, kind of reaffirming a military presence, building a series of posts. Right? the governor of Virginia sends George Washington, this young guy, a kid basically, who volunteers for it, <clears throat> as an emissary, essentially st- to go to the French and say, you realize you're on land that belongs to King George and we think you should with- withdraw, right? And of course, the upshot of that is that the French say, well, th- thank- thanks for stopping by, but no. This land belongs to Conlui. I don't think there's ever any real expectation on the part of the Governor of Virginia that the French will say, "Oops, sorry, didn't realize that. We'll go home." right It's, it's, it's part of a ritual that's playing played out. And actually, I think what Washington's real purpose there is to find out what the French are doing and also to get the lay of the land. And that means figuring out how to do business in Indian country. Who are the, the tribes? Where which way did they lie? And we need we need them on our side, not on the French side. Okay.
0: So Washington
1: kind of has that goal, but how to do that? He feels like he's dealing with you know smoke and mirrors, if that's the right analogy, because he can he did with no disrespect to a young Washington. He is just not equipped to understand the questions because he's dealing, he deals with this guy Tanarason, who's the half king, who's the uh, kind of ambassador, if you like, of the of the Six Nations League at Onondaga in the Ohio country. And he's a guy with multiple agendas at work. And he's not only just responding to Washington and Virginia, he's also dealing with the French. He's also dealing with, Um, Onondaga, and he's also dealing with the Shawnees and the Delawares, whom he is supposed to represent to Onondaga, and to whom he is supposed to represent Onondaga. So he's juggling a lot of balls, and for Washington, uh, this is a confusing world, um, as it was for the British Empire and the French, because it was an Indian world.
0: In the meantime, he has to deal with the tribal diplomacy, and this is mm-hmm. where the wampum belts come in, Yeah, yeah. where they require. To talk about that.
1: Yeah, it's, it's almost as if he needs, um, he goes in there and he picks up, he has in, interpreters to translate language for him, but of course, a good interpreter is also somebody who can interpret the meanings of wampum belts, but also uh, educate him in the protocols of wampum belts because this is how you communicate this is how you send and receive messages Uh, this is how you uh, create alliances it's also and this confuses washington it's also how you sever alliances Um, it's also how you um, declare war you have to present these belts at a certain point. So one of the things that confuses Washington, he's calling on um, the Indians to breach their allegiance with the French because the French are bad hombres. And the Indians, are Delaware's and Shawnee's, particularly saying, oh yeah, yeah, okay, we'll, we'll, do, we'll do that. But you know what? We have to get the wampum belts and take them back to the French. That's because, in order to breach, to break and sever an alliance that was made by presenting and receiving wampum belts, you have to return those wampum belts. Right? So there's this This is all contained in, in Washington's short journal, so it's almost like shorthand, and you just get a, a surface sense of what's going on. But it becomes clear that the Delawares and the Shawnees are dragging their feet. They're not sure that they want to break this allegiance with their alliance with the French. Um, If there is a war going to break out, it's going to be fought in their territory, in their homeland. They don't necessarily want to be in the middle of it, and they're not sure that they want to be on the English side. So Washington keeps getting these responses like, well, yeah, we'll do this, but we have to wait for so-and-so to bring the wampum belt. Uh, and it's, it's been left at somebody else's home. Or in some cases, I think it's Kostologa, the, the Delaware chief. Uh, his wife's got his wampum belt, right? And, it, it, and what, Washington begins to realize something's up. He's getting the runaround, but he's not exactly understanding why, because he doesn't yet understand why these wampum belts matter so much.
0: Right. So, uh, Harold, you did some studying on wampum belts, uh, so what was
2: your take on that? Yeah, there's uh, two things. Um, uh, I concur with uh, what uh, Colin just said. Um, it might be useful for your audience to know that a wampum belt is much more than a string of beads, quahog uh, cool shells uh, beaded in patterns, right? That's what we see when we look at the pictures or go to a museum. But uh, a wampum belt was seen as, as in, in essence as an animate, not inanimate, Uh, string of beads there's even in Abenaki there are two different words for a bead a glass bead is inanimate and a wampum bead shell bead is animate it has spirit force and Mm. so um, uh, there's an old uh, story uh, collected in Bécancourt among the Wawainok about um, how um, wampum beads are being produced and the story is that when the shamans from the tribes or nations that get together before or after a war for an important meeting that the most senior eldest uh, shaman, when he speaks, the wampum beads fall out of his mouth. That's not because he's losing his teeth, but because it's sacred language that comes out of the mouth. So the emanation from the soul the spirit to the mouth, into the air is picked up by other people. So that gets translated almost in that story, as if the wampum beads themselves come out of the shaman. And so, well, Native people know, of course, that these bump beads are made. They're woven together, usually by women, but are often made themselves in places like outside of Albany in a kind of cottage industry or outside of New Jersey. And they are purchased at a a trading post. But once they are consecrated by use, they are no longer a material object. They become an uh, animated, spirited, entity by themselves. And that's why these wampum belts were exchanged as sacred pledges. Um, now, the term sacred, um, we all know, is a very broad term that in some cultures has a much more narrow meaning and in other cultures much broader. Um, and I've had a, a argument here with a, a colleague who's an, who's an archaeologist, not here in Maine, but in Pennsylvania, who disputed that the idea that these wampum belts are sacred and uh, what this particular archaeologist, who I greatly respect, uh, I feel misses, is um, the sacralization, just like the Bible pledge when a, an American president uh, or a chief justice takes the oath. They take the oath on a Bible, for example, or if you're in the Middle East, on the Quran or the Torah, whatever it may be. But um, these wampum uh, bells are, in essence the um the spiritual um representation of of spirit power that ensures that the speaker is is honestly that is that is honest that is that his words really represent something other than simply i just said something so it's a little bit like a a, like a treaty in the sense that if it is not ratified uh by signature with witnesses then the treaty is simply a piece of paper, and the same thing with the speech by an orator. If an orator transmits a message, um, without that bumper belt, he, usually he, um, may not be taken at his words, but if he takes the bumper belt and has that hanging, for example, over his left arm and makes the speech, that is an indicator that there's a symbolic power representing something more than himself. He's speaking in the spirit of the nation that he represents.
1: And how could a, a young guy who's you know, 20, 21, on his first trip into Indian country, as it were, begin to understand the layers of meaning that are involved when a wampum belt changes hands, right? Or when somebody speaks on a wampum belt. Um, he's, he's at the beginning of a, a very steep learning curve.
2: Yeah, Just as a quick follow-up on that, um, uh, the um, uh, Colin was earlier referring to the Onondaga uh, as, um, you know, it is one of the five later six nations of Iroquois, the people called the Honosani, which is the Longhouse, um, and they are um, extremely uh, rich in their symbolic language and their ritual, and so have uh, influenced many other neighboring nations who've emulated that, uh, just like in the Roman Empire, out of Rome came a lot of uh, ritual that was picked up in the periphery of the Roman Empire. But they, uh, the uh, Iroquois, actually, in the Mohawk language, the belt <coughs> uh, word is, and I probably mispronounced it, is kahioni, and it is a human-made symbol emulating a river, uh, due in part to its linear form and in part to the way in which its constituent shell beads resemble ripples and waves just as a navigable river, course, facilitates mutual relations between nations, thus does the Kayoni, quote, the river formed by the hand of man, which I love as a, because they talk about these uh, river routes. It's the, 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 the trajectory between uh, one nation to another is almost always by way, by way of canoe travel. And so they're going by canoe along these rivers and a metaphor, the figure of speech, is that bumper Belt creates that linkage between um, Nation A and Nation B, whereby the messenger, the orator, carrying that bumper Belt creates a symbolic link, a tie, between, let's say, Washington D- DC and Ohio Valley, or whichever uh, place of uh, correspondence may be established.
1: If we put that in a, a slightly broader context, it it's often said in the history books talk about how <clears throat> when Europeans arrived in North America and started making treaties, Indian people were at a disadvantage because Europeans were literate, they had the written word, etc. And treaties were written in written in English or French or whatever. So Indian people had to scramble to catch up and to learn how to read and to appreciate the power of and the power of a written word, but it worked both ways. Right? That's from our perspective now. The perspective then, I think, and certainly Washington got it in 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 heavy doses, was that Europeans were illiterate in reading wampum belts, right? but they had to do it because wampum was as essential to the conduct of diplomacy and the making of treaties as was writing. And so your, your Indian people may be learning how to deal with the written word and maybe in case, some cases learning how to, to read and write. Europeans, some of them, have to learn how to read and write and to understand wampum belts so that an interpreter or somebody who's a go-between on the, on the frontier is adept in, in, in that medium as well. And that's where Washington is not yet by a long shot.
0: So they didn't, the uh, Europeans, uh, and uh, especially Washington, didn't appreciate the fact that uh, there was uh, diplomacy within the Indian tribes. Uh, and there were certain ways, culturally and traditionally, the tribes dealt with each other. So,
1: um, <clears throat> Depends what you mean by appreciate. I, I think they recognized it. I think they didn't appreciate the fact that it often worked against them. And I don't that they were even, a little bit I, out of their depth, yeah.
0: I, I think they were just dealing, they thought they were just dealing with a bunch of savages who didn't have any sort of connection with each other.
1: I certainly think there's that, that arrogance. I mean, that runs runs through it. And very often when that happens, that's when the Europeans, or later the Americans, uh, come a cropper, Right. I mean that was the attitude of the of the British commander who led the army into the Ohio country that that was destroyed. Um, Thirty forty years later, the Americans Don't do bring the same to the, thing.
0: Bring to that later, because I yeah. think that's really good. That's a good story. I want to save that. All right. Uh, but you said in your book, uh, your uh, the the your most recent book. You said uh, Washington. Uh, he looked uh, East at the past and West at the future. Mm-hmm. So when, and, and then when you look West, he was looking at, uh, he was looking at, at Indian country. Right. Uh, because the East by later on after the, the wars and whatever uh, basically had already been taken care of. And the next, the expansion was westward. That's where most of his <coughs> sites were always set was west because there's more land out that way uh, for for Virginia and those other states.
1: Yeah. And I think that um, one of the, one of, I, I teach Native American history and one of the <coughs> things I Say in all my classes is it's not something that I regard as revisionist history although some might. I simply say this is a nation built on Indian land, and I think that's that's, that's just it, right? That's just the fact. And I think we often I think often we forget that Washington never forgot that Washington understood that that was how the nation would have to be built so that when Washington was fighting the revolution, he was fighting to secure independence for the American states from Britain, but independence alone was not enough. In order for, this, for these states to have the foundation for the nation and a future as a nation, he understood that that new nation needed land. And that land lay to the west. That was how the nation was gonna grow. And so I think he was he was always looking west. He was always thinking about the west. The potomac snakes past Mount Vernon. And it heads west. Right? He was thinking about how can we build a canal that would link the Potomac to the Ohio River and bring all the commerce of the Ohio country, back this way, past my back door, right? Um, but it, more than anything else, he's thinking, he's looking west as the area to, to expand the nation, and as his plan develops, as the American plan develops, that becomes a state-by-state state expansion, but it's always based on Indian land. And the American story is always about transforming Native American homelands into American real estate.
0: Right. And, and Washington surveying was a comes, big part of that. I'm sorry? And surveying was a big part of Absolutely.
1: that. Absolutely. Yeah. And Washington awesome. started out his career as a surveyor. And he always looked at, at land as a surveyor, I think. Um, if, if,
2: If I make a a quick comment uh, regarding to Maine, um, there the perspective was not west out of Boston. It was, of course, down east, north, right? North and east. And uh, I mentioned earlier the Kennebec uh, River. Um, You may remember the Kennebec proprietors uh, made up of wealthy merchants in primarily Massachusetts who had an extraordinarily callous disregard for any kind of ownership. They manipulated documents left and right. They created deeds, falsified deeds, had transcription of deeds, leaving words out. It's just an amazing narrative of fraud. And all was geared toward not only land, but also timber. Um, The first wave of wealth is, of course, uh, timber, in particular um, white pine, for example, for the uh, huge Navy building that went on, not only in the United States, but also by France, uh, in, in England, where very few tall trees had been left. Ireland was almost completely deforested. Uh, so uh, uh, large trees had to come from Scandinavia or even from the Baltic Sea in Russia. So there was a huge amount of um, demand for timber. And the um, uh, speculations in Indian land very often first had to do with first crop would be the timber. And That often already paid for the value for the entire land that you bought, uh, and then you can use it for agricultural purposes. So I completely agree with uh, Colin mm. as far as George Washington is concerned, which is what what he uh, what the book is about. <laughs> but when you turn to Maine and the Wabanaki, um, the uh, the um, the wealth obsession from the merchants in Boston primarily was directed, um, you know, east of the Kennebec. Uh, and that's of course you get uh, the the br- brilliant young um, military officer under George Washington uh, in the name of uh, Henry Knox, right? Right. Uh, is very active, and uh, Yeah, that's a whole different story. Well, tell us about Henry Knox. I'm interested in yeah. that. Well, Henry Knox. Uh, unless uh, Colin wants to take this. No, Colin, go ahead.
1: Huh? All, right. all, all, all I was as, as you were saying, I was thinking Henry Knox because I actually often think that for Washington, looking north to northeast to Maine, it's kind of, it's a different world. It's not one he's familiar with. He's he's looking to Ohio Valley, but Washington's a Virginia. But for Henry Knox, who's a Boston bookseller, of course, this is, if you like, his backyard. And so, of course, but they're doing the same things, right? They're wheeling and dealing in land in the areas in which they they operate Washingtons in Virginia and the Ohio Valley yeah. and Henry the, Knox is
2: the, What they have, what they have, yard, I think. What they have in common uh, is that they both married wealthy wives, um, land owning mm. uh, from land owning uh, families. In the case of Henry Knox, of course, uh, the granddaughter of uh, Samuel Waldo, after whom uh, Borough and Waldo County are named. And he, of course, uh, was the instrumental power in the establishment of Fort Pownall on the Penobscot that choked uh, the Penobscot uh, from uh, the uh, the traffic between uh, what was then still French uh, Quebec and the Gulf of Maine, mm. and that was for the Wabanaki in Maine was the end of uh, the French and Indian War involvement. Um, so um, uh, back to Henry Henry Knox, uh, he himself as uh, you know, anyone who studied uh, Henry Knox a little bit knows that he, he's, as a 13-year-old, started to work, his father was uh, gone. Uh, I think he was, went to the West Indies and never came back. And Henry was the oldest boy and had to start working. And he was a largely self-taught young man who opened, indeed, a bookstore in Boston and taught himself French, was an, a, a voracious reader, uh, became a great admirer of uh, French civilization, and when he married um, um, uh, this rich young woman from a very wealthy pro-British family in Boston, he married also into the wealth of um, a huge uh, landed estate um, between the Penobscot and the Kennebec River, roughly, um, which was the Waldo Patent. Um, a very troubling history in terms of how that was uh, taken, in terms of deeds, but everybody was uh, lying and cheating. If I make a, a political comment here, uh, what I found uh, very helpful in the last four years in this, this country, in the United States, was the open um, greed and and lack of civility almost in the way business was done in Washington, D.C. Because to me, that became almost a, a, an eye-opener of how to better understand the kind of political wheeling and dealing with self-enrichment by many politicians uh, and military generals. Uh, So General Flynn, for example, would have completely fitted very nicely into um, the post-American Revolutionary War period. Um, There's a huge amount of self-dealing and the distinction between the public interest and private interest. was very, very vague. And with a lot of transition where we now start saying, hey, we need a commission on that, that's completely accepted. So there's a lot of stuff in the making of the, of the American public Republic and the way um, American politicians uh, were dealing with native peoples. Uh, you really have to understand that was such a different world mentally, psychologically, emotionally, then uh, we now um, try to project our values on the past. It just doesn't work that way.
1: Yeah, I'd agree. I think in 18th century America, uh, in 18th century, like white America, land is the route to fortune, it's the route to status, it's the route to political standing, et cetera, et cetera. How you get it is less of an issue and i think as Hal says i mean you don't have to go far into the career of anybody of prominence whether in philadelphia or washington or on the frontier at some point they're wheeling and dealing and land. and you know as i found with with george washington although i didn't go looking for this didn't have to look very far it's not just indian people that they're swindling out of their land, they're swindling each other out of their land. It's almost as if this is part of the culture.
2: Yeah, if I may, a quick comment. um, You know, of course, about the Shays' Rebellion uh, right Mm -hmm. in the wake of um, the American Revolutionary War. And if you look at the the extraordinary brutality with which the Massachusetts elite, James Bowden after whom Bowdoin College, the, the father of the, the guy who bequeathed the Bowdoin College here, the way they were talking about fellow, boat patriots, people who had just fought in the Revolutionary War on in their own regiments sometimes, uh, how they talked about um, extirpation, hanging. Even John Adams, I think, uh, said that if his son would have been involved in that rebellion, he himself would have voted for hanging him. And uh, so when they talk about Native Americans, who are resisting the land grabs um, by by force of arms, and then talk about exploration? That was u- not uniquely directed against Native Americans. Anyone who stood in their way was going to be sabered down. And I think people forget it in a racialized discourse that we see today in the United States that everything is fractured along the divide of race A or race B. But the class issue is extraordinarily important. And in terms of wealth, poor is an extraordinarily important divide, as is religion. So we are so um, blinded today by two major uh, factors with which we think and reflect on society, race and gender, Uh, but we forget religion and class are extraordinarily important. If you want to understand how like the Scottish Highland clearings, where "column" comes from, right? The um, code, uh, the battle. I mean, the extraordinary cruelty of the lairds, the Scottish noblemen, with which they completely depopulated uh, the highlands because sheep were cheaper than uh, than production of rye. They didn't get money out of it. So entire ships were were uh, were readied in the harbors of Scotland, or Liverpool, or wherever it was. And the villages were torched um, as the people were driven out. And then these people then come on the shores of wherever they were dumped and have nowhere to go. So it's a much greater tragedy than we often think it is in terms of how uh, civilization uh, and wealth was produced. And now we're kind of lassoed in to this admiration of the founding fathers. They become completely mystified and mythologized by narratives that really require some more critical look at, because these, these narratives are simply, most often, uh, minimally incomplete. Uh, not everything that we hear about them is not true, but all the things that are left out from the narrative is essential to get an understanding of what the founding of this republic was all about.
0: Yeah, so is it a sort of history repeating itself? You look at it, you.
2: you I know. always say to my students, I say, uh, if you look at the Bible, a story that has been passed on for thousands of years about Adam and Eve, what happens with the very first family? The very first child born was a murderer of his own younger brother. So I saying, wow, that's the story that was told for thousands of years, and you could pretty much tell that today and is being told today. It's the same basic story. We are. Creatures endowed with great capacity for great good. We're also creatures uh, created with the capacity for great evil, which means the development of a conscience, right? A conscience that is mindful of the rights of the poor or the rights of the oppressed that needs to be installed generation upon generation upon generation because if you don't do that, um, we are literally... Um, as it was said by uh, by Hobbes, uh, the great philosopher in England in the seventeenth century, we are like wolves unto unto wolves. That's sort of like a segue
0: into the the Constitution, <laughs> right? <laughs> the, the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists and mm-hmm. the Ill of Rights and so right back, you know, sovereignty.
2: Um, yeah, and the balance of power, right? This is the key well, yeah. element, right? That checks that checks on power because not a single individual can be entrusted with full power. And that was even true for George Washington, notwithstanding great veneration that people have had for him, but George Washington was also the president of the Order of the Cincinnati. And the Cincinnati, um, Colin knows a lot about it, I'm sure, but the Cincinnati was... Uh, a military um, civil order, um, really emulating almost a replication of the old feudal regimes in Europe that were just about to be toppled in France. And uh, Henry Knox, we mentioned him before, was he, basically his brainchild, um, was to create a kind of an hereditary aristocracy based on primogeniture, the first sons would inherit into the title, And there was great fear that the Americans, just after they had gained international recognition of their independence as a republic in 1783, that's when Henry Knox comes up with the idea of the Order of the Cincinnati, Cincinnati, which was a reference to George Washington as the gentleman farmer senator in Rome, who then returns after he had all the power voluntarily and is called back, who had this lofty image. But um, Jefferson, Thomas Jefferson, um, when he was in Europe, uh, realized the horror with which that idea was received in much of Europe when they heard that in America, with uh, uh, Washington in charge—or actually, nominally, I should be in charge—was really Henry Knox, and, uh, Henry Knox, but of the uh, of the Order of Cincinnati. And almost all the generals involved in the sabering down of Indian resistance or the Shay's Rebellion, almost all of them, uh, uh, were members of the Order of the Cincinnati. Comments from Colin
1: on that? Yeah, I mean, of course, one of the things that uh, we forget, or maybe we never really... I can't can't hear anything. anything.
2: Can you hear me, Donna? Yes, I can. Okay. Yeah,
1: yeah. Okay. One of the things I think we forget, or or we didn't know, but just because of where we are, and that is that when... Washington and the revolution created this new nation and then the constitution was to create a more perfect um, government, they weren't envisaging what we envisage. This was not um, a a government for for all all people, for all men, etc., etc. This was a government which it had a sense of checks and balances, which many of us have come to appreciate uh, in recent years, but it was also one that was not thinking of sharing government with, if you like, the masses. Um, This was something to be protected. And I think um, looking back to the 18th century, we have to recognize that, you know, somebody said about the past, it's a foreign country. They did things differently there. Um, they had different goals and different expectations. And of course, but that uh, that challenge that that Harold um, outlined is is constant, right? It's constant to, to human experience that human beings have the capacity to do horrible things to each other, right? Watch the news any day, right? But also, hopefully, human beings have the ability to survive the terrible things that we do to each other—that's what I often said of my students. It's, it's, it's the, it's, if you like, the positive side of studying Native American history, right? Um, but it's always there, and it's a continual challenge, right? And so, and I think the the founding fathers, for one, of a better word, understood that, right? That these they're creating mechanisms to to keep that. Um, keep those ambitions in check, right? Because they were well aware of them. They were their ambitions. Right? Um, and so often those things, of course, in the 18th century were were worked out and fought out over the issues of um of land, which essentially means it's Indian policy.
0: So that brings us to the um the westward expansion. Mm-hmm. Um, when, and, and you know, I, I think I'm not sure if I you know the date of that. The uh, the 70 yes, uh, the 1790 uh, uh, Non-Intercourse Act that the federal government instituted. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically saying that, uh, that looking at looking westward, federal government could only be the one to uh, treaty with the tribes for land. Private right. citizens and states could not. Yeah. So that kept all of that land uh, only available to the federal government.
1: Yeah. um yeah, and essentially that was a. a- a retread of what had been British policy in the 1760s. But in, in 1787, the Northwest Ordinance basically sets up what is now the Midwest as the, as the Northwest Territory and says, this is how it's gonna proceed, that there will be a logical and systematic and orderly surveying, um, dividing up, settling, of this area and that the territories there will eventually become states this was the mechanism by which expansion would lead to, to nation building that as a once a territory got 5000 people it could form a territorial government once it got 60000 people it could petition to be admitted to the United States on an equal footing with other states. And essentially, this is the blueprint for how the nation grows. As people move west, land is taken over, territories become states, states join the union. So this is a national endeavor. But of course, land is key to everything, and so it's fundamentally important that the federal government essentially controls this. that it be organized and that it be um, governed from the center. So it's the federal government that's going to be buying and selling Indian land, not individuals, not the states, etc. That's what the 1790 Trade and Intercourse Act was supposed to do. It basically said um, sales of Indian land are not legal unless they are approved by Congress. And of course, it was that legislation that was ignored by the state of Massachusetts and the state of Maine and other states as well. Because in 1790, the United States Congress, one of the reasons it was doing this was to try and assert its power because it was a year old or so, right? The Constitution had just been ratified and there was still this struggle between the federal government, and the states. And the states were not sure at all that they wanted to give up authority and power and control over Indian land to the federal government and to Congress. So it was a tussle, and a lot of states and a lot of individuals ignored that, which, of course, um, meant that the issue was, if you like, kicked down the road for a lot of years to result in, in lawsuits in, in the 20th century.
0: Okay, so we got about maybe a little more than a minute to go. So, <laughs> and I knew we'd, lose, we'd We'd be doing this. Uh, so, uh, Colin, do you have some last-minute thoughts? Very quickly, maybe I don't know, two seconds
1: or whatever. The in the Ohio country, about the same time, the Americans send out commissioners to Indian people to make a treaty. And the Delaware's, Wyandots, Shawnees basically say, we don't want to. We don't want to give up our land. And essentially, to paraphrase it, the Americans' position is, you don't understand. The British have already given us your land. It's ours now to disperse with as we wish. And so, what we will be doing is giving you pockets of land on which to live. It's our land to give and yours to receive. And this, to echo Harold's point, at the end of a war in which the Indians have actually not been defeated. At the end of the war, the Indians were winning in the West. They were defeating American armies. But because of this uh, board game of a a treaty in which the, the British recognized American independence and then transferred to America, to the United States, all the land from the Atlantic to the Mississippi, that those Indian homelands on paper shifted ownership and Indian people are then confronted with what's not a reality, but it is a new reality.
2: In other words, there's a whole chain of knowledge and exchange through diplomacy and bumping belts and messengers at Council to We have no records of it. Occasionally we see a small piece Popping up, up in the record. Yeah. All
0: right. Well, I want to thank you, Professor uh, Colin Calloway and Professor Harold Prince, for being on the show today. I really enjoyed the conversation. So thank you all as an audience for joining us. Uh, I'm your host, on Loring, and you've been listening to Wabanaki Windows. And the music for our show is by Rolf Richter, a track called Little Eagles from his CD, Dreamwalk. And the enge- engineer for our show is Joel Mann. And tune in again next month for another Wabanaki Windows.